Well, hey, good morning. My name is Josh Miller. I'm one of the pastors here. I want to welcome you to Center Church. If you're a guest, we are thrilled that you're here. If you're back from last week, man, we are thrilled that you're here. Uh, you may not know that today is only our second Sunday in this new facility. And so last Sunday was our grand opening, uh, and it was an amazing, an amazing Sunday. So we're going to clap at the end, so you don't have to clap yet, okay? Uh, and so, man, I heard so many stories about what God did last weekend. I can't share all of them, but there were two that really stuck out to me. Uh, one, I talked to a first-time guest, so the first time she'd ever been to our church, she received uh, a mailer that we sent out. And man, she'd been feeling like, man, it was time to get back in church. She hadn't been back in church for a long time. And this is amazing. She said the moment she turned into the parking lot, she felt the presence of God. Isn't that amazing? She said, I saw the parking attendant with his wand and he was smiling and I felt the presence of God, right? So big hand for all of our parking attendants, right? Um, and, and she just said, man, I, I was here. I could feel the presence of God. Man, I could just feel that he was here and, and I want to come back, which is just amazing. Um, and then I heard lots of stories, like multiple stories, man, of people who last week was the very first time they'd ever been in a church service. I mean, it was the first ever church service they'd ever been to. If that's you and you're back, man, we're really, really glad that you're here. Man, that really moved me because um, unfortunately, there's a lot of people who have had very bad experiences with the church. And so in order for them to get to Jesus, they sort of have to like overcome some bad memories. But at least for that, group of people who were here last time is their very first experience with the church. Man, they got to hear you. They got to hear God's people worship passionately. Man, they, they got to, man, see the people of God pray and give. I hope I preached coherently, right? Like they got to, to hear the word of God. And so, man, it is easier for them now to come to Jesus because of their experience with our church. And so I was so, so thrilled about that. Um, so many of you, man, prayed and invested and gave and served and sacrificed to make last Sunday a Sunday to remember. And it was, I mean, I won't give you all the numbers, but we had more first time guests last Sunday than we've ever had in a single Sunday. We had more people volunteer last Sunday than we've ever had volunteer in a single Sunday. We had more kids in the kids ministry last Sunday than we've all already are, than we've ever had in a single Sunday. And we had more total people come and worship with us last Sunday than we've ever had in a single Sunday. Wait for it and then we'll clap. We had 566 people come and worship with us last weekend, okay? Man, so I'm, I'm grateful to the Lord. I'm grateful to all of you that helped uh, make it possible. And one of the things I told you last week is that we love to create places and spaces for people to come and see. So if you were here last week, I talked about Andrew and how Andrew was spiritually interested, but he needed to spend some time with Jesus and see the people of God before he was ready to believe. And that's true for many people today. That might be true for you. And so part of what we do as a church is we want to create places and spaces that people can come and see. And man, Sunday is a great opportunity to do that. Man, but we also have another event coming up next weekend that's a great opportunity to do that. It's our fall fest. Okay, so we're gonna have an incredible party right here in what I call the backyard. Okay, we've got about a half acre back here that's flat that we're gonna have an incredible kind of fall party out there, and you're gonna love it. I mean, your kids are gonna love the inflatable obstacle course. Okay, like you're gonna love the yard games and the fire pits and the s'mores and the food and the sweet treats and all the things. But more than anything, it's an opportunity to hang out with your church family. More than anything, it's an opportunity to invite your friends and your family, man, to come and see and to say, you know what? Maybe I'm not ready to go to a church service yet, but I want to see the people of God living out what it means to be a community. And so, Pastor. Justin's going to give you more details about that, but I hope you'll make plans to join us and invite some folks to come with you. And here's the truth, guys. We don't do things like that for pragmatic reasons. We do them for theological reasons. Because in the gospel, God has moved towards us in Jesus Christ. And now in response, we want to move towards others. Okay, and so that's why we do things like Fall Fest. That's why we do things like Grand Opening, because we want to invite people to come and see. All right? Before we jump into our sermon today, I just want to pray and thank God for all that he is doing, he has done, and that he will do. Okay, so would you join me? 
Uh, Lord, we praise you for your kindness to us. We thank you for last weekend. We don't need a building. God, we don't, we don't need an incredible worship team. We don't need all these things, but you give them to us because you're a good father, and we thank you for that. We thank you for all the people who came last week and heard the gospel preached. We, we thank you for all the people who invested and served and sacrificed so that that could happen. And Lord, we just pray that you would do even more. God, in, in light of all you've done, we praise you, Lord, and we ask you to do more because we know you're able. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, if you have a Bible, you can meet me in John chapter 2. We're going to be in verses 1 through 11 today. And to kick off a sermon, man, I want to read you a quote from A.W. Tozer. He's a famous 20th century pastor. He said this, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And that kind of makes sense, right? Based on what you think and who you think God is will then impact how you respond to him and, and how you live your life. So here's the question of the sermon today. What comes to your mind when you think about Jesus Christ? What comes to your mind when you man, see a cross on, on someone's neck? What comes to your mind when you think about Jesus Christ? Um, I think many of us have at least some misunderstanding of who Jesus truly is. Uh, that's, that's certainly the case for me. So a couple of years ago, Meredith and I went to the Museum of the Bible, which I know is such a typical pastor thing to do. You know, it's like, what do you do on your vacation? I go to Bible museums, you know, and I pray. Anyway, um, and so we're at the Museum of the Bible, and we're watching this video, and, and it's, you know, a rendition of Jesus teaching. And the actor that was portraying Jesus was about five foot eight, and he had really dark, curly hair, and it totally threw me off. And I was like, that's not Jesus. Jesus is six foot two. He has blue eyes, straight hair, and he looks European, right? Like, which, of course, would be odd for a first-century Middle Eastern Jew, right, to look European. Um, but I just realized in that moment, like, even me, a pastor who's been to seminary, like, my image of Jesus has been shaped to some degree by culture, right, by pictures I've seen, movies I've watched. And I would imagine the same thing is true of you. To some degree, what you think about Jesus Christ has been shaped by the culture that you're a part of. So it might be shaped by stained glass windows that you, you saw growing up. It might be shaped by Jesus memes that you've seen online. It might be shaped by sarcastic television shows like Family Guy, right? But, but all of us, to some degree, have had our image of Jesus shaped by culture. So the question is, what is Jesus actually like? What is Jesus actually like? Not the Jesus of culture, but the Jesus of the scriptures. And that's what we're after in this sermon series, okay? It's one of the primary reasons that John wrote this gospel. So if you go to John chapter 20, he basically says this, look, I want you to know Jesus so you will then believe in Jesus and you will be saved by Jesus. I want you to know him so you'll believe in him so then you'll be saved by him. So what we're doing is we're looking at nine interactions in the Gospel of John that Jesus has with different people and in different circumstances, and we're asking the question, okay, who is Jesus? And today is fun because today we're going we're gonna to watch as Jesus takes 120 gallons of water and transforms it into 120 gallons of wine so that a week-long wedding party can keep rolling. Okay, maybe not what you had in mind when you think about Jesus, but that is what we're going to do. And we're told in verse 11 of chapter 2 that Jesus did this to manifest his glory. Okay, to manifest his glory. That's another way to say that he did this to reveal something important about God and us. He, he performed this miracle, this sign, to teach us something about spiritual reality. Okay, and here's the big, no, the, big, the big idea if you're taking notes. If you're a note taker, you have to leave early. Here it is. I see some of you furiously writing. Like, here it is, okay? Jesus didn't come to make good people better. He came to make bad people new. Okay, Jesus didn't come to make good people better. He came to make bad people new. He came for something much more holistic and much more intense than moral reformation. He came to affect utter transformation in our lives. And that is the point of this sign. And so what we're going to do is we're going to walk through the text and then we're going to press in on what does that mean for us today? Okay, look at verse one with me. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there. So that's Mary. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. 
So if you're here with us last week, Jesus and his disciples were down kind of south in Judea. Well, they leave there and they travel up north to Galilee and they go to this little town called Cana. And they go because they're invited to a wedding there, okay? Now, weddings are a big deal today, right? If you're planning a wedding, you're like, it's a huge deal. It's an overwhelming deal, right? Um, But they were an even bigger deal back then. Okay, for a first century family, a wedding was the most expensive, important, and complex thing you would plan in your entire life. Okay, it was like the thing that you saved towards. Like, they didn't save towards college educations. They saved towards weddings, okay? Like, they didn't have like a 501 whatever. For, they had it for weddings. And, man, it was the thing that you talked about year after year, and it was the thing that you were known for. Like, hey, remember the so-and-so family, that incredible wedding that they had five years ago? Like, people would talk about this for generations. Okay, so there's this massive wedding that's going on, and Jesus is invited. Okay, so let's just stop for a second and and let me say something. Jesus wasn't a monk. Ever thought about that? Jesus wasn't a monk. He didn't live in the wilderness. He wasn't antisocial. He wasn't in his bunker waiting for judgment day. Okay, like Jesus was very social. He went to parties. In fact, he was so social, he went to so many parties that his enemies called him a drunkard and a glutton. They accused him of being unrighteous for just how many social activities he was involved with. Now, here's an interesting thought. At this point, Very few people knew he was the Messiah, right? The disciples knew, John the Baptist knew, his mom knew something was special about him, but the people making this guest list didn't know. So it's not like they were like, you know what, we better invite the Son of God to this wedding. That'd be a good idea. You know, like they're not not doing that. This is fascinating. This is what they said. Whoever made the guest list was like, you know who's a good time? Jesus. Jesus is a good time. Jesus, you know, son of Nazareth, like, let's have Jesus at our party, right? They, they They wanted Jesus at their wedding reception. How amazing. Man, when God came to earth, he was the kind of guy you wanted at your wedding reception. Isn't that a fascinating thought? Sometimes we think of him like a principal, you know, like he's always telling you to be quiet, walk in line and tuck in your shirt. But it's like, man, he's the kind of person that you wanted at your wedding reception. He was perfectly holy, and yet his holiness was compelling to people. He wasn't holy in kind of a stodgy, stuck-up kind of way. He was holy in a compelling, fun kind of way. So just two quick points of application. Number one, does your vision of discipleship involve parties? Does your vision of discipleship involve parties? Because if discipleship means becoming more like Jesus, then the question is, do you get invited to parties? Is your holiness the kind of holiness that's compelling and that people say, you know what? I don't necessarily agree with him or agree with her. And I think we believe some different things, but man, I want them around. I like when they're around. They're a lot of fun. So number one, does your vision of discipleship involve parties? Number two, have you invited Jesus to your wedding? Have you invited Jesus to your wedding? So one of the things I love about our church is people are getting married all the time. Literally before the 915, another couple came up to me and was like, we're getting married, okay? And it's awesome, and I love it. And weddings are a lot of work, right? I get it. It's like, oh, where's the rehearsal dinner and the venue and the catering and the dresses and the parties? Ah, it's really overwhelming. In the midst of all that, have you asked the question, man, how can we make this wedding Jesus-centered and Jesus-saturated? In the midst of all the other planning, which is good, it's fair enough, it's fun. But man, if you ask the question, how can we make this day all about Christ? How can we invite Jesus to our wedding, just like this couple invited Jesus to their wedding back then? Something to think about. All right, verse three. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Okay, so Jesus' family was poor, so it's likely that their friends were poor. Okay, that's just kind of how it worked back then. And so this family was probably not very well off financially. Now, Weddings lasted a week in that culture, okay? They started on Wednesday night, and they lasted for a week. So Wednesday night, you had the ceremony, then you had a feast, then you had the wedding night, then you had a whole week of feasts. So that means if you were going to host a wedding, you had to provide food and drink and lodging for all of your guests for a week. How would you like to rent Boar's Head for a week, okay? Like, it would, it would be very expensive, all right? And what happened was this couple didn't have enough money. Right? So they apparently had enough money for food and drink for the first couple days, and then they get to a point, they're like three days in, and they run out of wine. They didn't buy enough wine because they apparently didn't have enough money. 
And we read that and we think like, oh, like that's kind of embarrassing, like that, you know, but like whatever, it's, it's not a big deal. Um, but this was a massive problem because in the first century, the wedding was how the husband demonstrated that he could provide for his wife. So the, the wedding was 100% the responsibility of the groom. It wasn't his parents' responsibility. It wasn't the bride's responsibility. It was the groom's responsibility. And you had a year to plan it. Isn't that crazy? You got betrothed, and then there was a year, and you were supposed to work and make money and plan to throw this incredible week-long wedding feast to demonstrate to her dad and everybody in the community, I'm a man. I can hack it. I can provide for my family. And this guy couldn't. He had a year, and he couldn't get it together. He didn't have enough resources. He didn't have enough wine. And so what this declares to everyone in the community is I can't hack it. I don't have what it takes. I, I, I can't provide for this feast and maybe I can't provide for my wife. And when you realize that, you see, oh man, like this is a big, big deal in the life of this couple. And Mary finds out about it. Now we don't know how she finds out about it, but it's, it's likely at least that she was really close with this family. So she kind of knew what was going on and she could, she could tell that the bride was stressed, you know, and says, so what's going on? Oh no, we're out of wine. And I love what Mary does. Mary comes to Jesus. He, she comes to Jesus with this need and says, hey, they've run out of wine. Now, is a lack of wine, was a lack of wine the most pressing issue in all of the world at that moment? No. But here's the thing. Mary didn't come to Jesus because the issue was important. Mary came to Jesus because she was important. She knew, man, that's my son. That's the son of God. He has power to do something about this. So I'm going to go to him with this need that this couple has. Here's one of the remarkable things that the scriptures teach us. God is both transcendent. Jesus is high and exalted, the Alpha and Omega, the creator of the heavens and the earth. And yet he's also imminent. He's close. He's Emmanuel. He's God with us. And because you are important to God, your life is important to him. There is no small thing in your life because you are important to him. And so we go to God, not just with our big requests, like save everybody and start a revival and blah, blah, blah. But it's like, man, help me at work. Help me to be content in the midst of this season of singleness. Man, help me get through these exams that I'm going through. Help me make some friends, right? Uh, this came home to me uh, just a couple weeks ago. So uh, Meredith and I started having lower back pain and uh, we realized it was because our mattress was shot. Okay, so uh, we got our mattress from like Sam's Club like 12 years ago. And, you know, it had lived a good life, but it was time to send it out to pasture, okay? Uh, so we needed to get a new mattress, uh, but we just didn't, we didn't have $1,000 laying around, you know, to buy, to buy a new mattress. And so we wanted to get one, but, but we couldn't afford it. And so, I don't know, I just started praying. And I was just like, God, we would really like a new mattress. And it wasn't even a need. Like, we, there's plenty of people in the world that don't have a mattress. It wasn't a need. It wasn't the most important thing in the world at that point. But I wanted a mattress. So we started, I started praying for that. And I'm not kidding you. This is crazy. I'm not kidding you. The very day, that afternoon, a family in our church texted us and said, we want to buy you a mattress. And I was like, what else should I have asked for this morning? You know, like, <laughs> like left a lot on the table there, right? Um, but guys, here, here's why I tell you that story. Man, Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. He's also the Savior that cares about your mattress. Right? And so just like Mary had a need and she went to Jesus, man, whatever your need is, big or small, man, go to Jesus with those needs because he loves to hear from his children. All right, verse four. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. So Jesus' reply to Mary sounds harsh to our ears, but it actually wasn't uh, in that day and age. So woman was a respectful way to refer to her, kind of like ma'am. Um, and it's actually the same title that Jesus used uh, when he was on the cross and he placed Mary tenderly into the care of John to take care of her. So he said, woman, behold your son, son, behold your mother. So he's not being disrespectful, but Jesus is asking, hey, why are you involving me in this? Why are you, why are you trying to get me involved in this process? My hour has not yet come. 
Okay, and that phrase, my hour, is a really important theological phrase in the Gospel of John. And so it feels a little bit cryptic to us, so let me unpack it for you. Um, the idea is that Jesus is living on a heavenly timetable marked out by God the Father. He wouldn't go faster or slower than his Father desired. Right? That is what he means when he says, my hour has not yet come. And if you ever read a phrase like my hour in the Bible and you don't know quite what it means, a good idea is to trace that phrase in the rest of the book. And sometimes that'll sort of answer your question. And so if you do that in John, you'll find that it shows up in John 7.30, 12.23, 12.27, 13.1, 1, and 17.1. And each time that phrase, my hour, is used, it's referring to the cross. You see, the hour towards which everything was moving was the hour of Jesus' death, resurrection, and exaltation. Jesus did many, many things in his earthly life, but all of it was tilting towards his death for the sins of the world. Jesus was an incredible teacher. He challenged religious power structures. He cared for the poor and he elevated the status of women. But all of that was done under the shadow of the cross. Dying in the place of sinners and rising again is what Jesus came to do. That was his primary purpose and mission. And any understanding of Jesus, which fails to see that, fails to see the biblical Jesus. So that's what my hour means. Now, what's interesting is that Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. And then he did what Mary asked him to do. And that's confusing, right? So I was reviewing the sermon with our staff and they were like, hey, why did he do that? And I was like, let me get back to you. I'm not sure, <laughs> okay? So I did a little bit of research and, and here's what I think is going on. Um, while Jesus was in his mother's house, he was under his mother's authority. So scholars think that Joseph, his, his earthly kind of adopted father, died when Jesus was a teenager. And so while he was still living with his mother, she was his authority. So she honor, he honored his mother. And while you're living with your parents, the way that you honor your parents is you obey your parents. Okay, that's what it means to honor your parents. But a point comes when you transition into adulthood. Okay, and you're working on your own, and you're living on your own, and you're no longer under your parents' house. And so you still honor your parents, but you don't honor them in the same way. So for instance, it would, it would probably be unhealthy if you were 40 years old and like your parents who were, you know, 70 were telling you what to do. Like that, would, that wouldn't be a super healthy, healthy relationship. And so I think what Jesus is saying to Mary is like, hey mom, I love you, but like we have a new relationship now. Like I know I used to do exactly what you told me to do and I was a perfect son, but like now I'm on my heavenly father's timetable. And even though you're coming to me being like, hey, I want you to do this, we've got a new relationship and I don't submit to your authority, I submit to the father's authority. Okay, so that's the point that Jesus is making. Hey, we're in a new relationship now. I love you, but man, you're not, you're not kind of the primary authority in my life anymore. Um, but it just so happens that this particular need was on the heavenly father's divine timetable. Okay, so Jesus makes the point, but then he's like, but actually I, I'm still gonna do something, okay? Um, and, and I love Mary's response. Um, Mary didn't get the answer that she expected, right? This is, I mean, if, if you have kids and your kid said this to you, how would you feel, right? She didn't get the answer she was expecting and yet she maintains a posture of obedient discipleship. Do you see that? She looks at the servants and she says, do whatever he tells you to do. That is the best discipleship advice in the scriptures, okay? Hey, do whatever he tells you to do. Fun fact, Mary only makes one exhortation in the entire Bible and it's this one. What a great thing to exhort people to. Do whatever he tells you to do. So let me ask you, Center Church, what is Jesus telling you to do? What is Jesus telling you to do? And it's, and it's worth noting that Jesus doesn't ask, Jesus tells. Mentors ask, counselors ask, friends ask, examples ask, but lords tell. So what is it that Jesus is telling you to do? And if you know what it is in your mind and in your heart right now, here's my follow-up question. Why haven't you done it? If you know what it is that Jesus is telling you to do, why haven't you done it? And I could, you know, we could talk about this and apply this in about a dozen different ways, but I want to take a, a minute and I want to talk about baptism. 
Because this is one of the areas that I see this come up a lot. So I'll talk to people and they'll say, hey, man, I became a Christian. Like, man, that's amazing. Praise the Lord. Uh, and I'll say, well, have you been baptized? And they'll say, well, no, I haven't been baptized. I'll say, okay. I'll say, well, you know, have, has no, have you not seen where it says in the Bible that you should be baptized? Do you disagree with that? They're like, no, I see that. It's like, okay. Uh, it's like, has nobody talked to you about how you can be baptized? They're like, no, I know how to, I know how to be baptized. And I'm like, well, why haven't, why haven't you been baptized yet? And they'll say, I just don't feel like it's right yet. I just, I just don't feel like doing it yet. Right? And, and in that moment, I try to gently say, like, hey, um, the question is not do you feel like doing it. The question is are you surrendered to what Jesus calls you to do? And I, I hear a fair amount of um, objections, and you might have these objections, and they're not, they're not fake objections. They're real objections. So maybe you're really introverted, and you're like, the idea of getting baptized in front of a bunch of people just, I mean, gives me anxiety. Fair enough. Uh, maybe you were sprinkled with water as an infant, and you're afraid that if you get baptized as an adult, man, it's going to, like, dishonor or upset your parents. Like, fair enough. Uh, maybe you've been a Christian for a while, and you're like, look, I don't get it. Like, why, why does it matter if I get baptized now? I've been following Jesus. It doesn't, it doesn't make me a Christian, right? Those, those are all fair objections. But you see, the, the, the fundamental question is not do you feel like doing it. The fundamental question is will you do whatever he tells you to do, right? Will you do whatever he tells you to do? You see, I could give you a whole theological explanation on the importance of baptism, but really the fundamental question is are you willing to do what Jesus tells you to do? And if you look through the scriptures, it's massively clear that Jesus commands every one of his disciples to be baptized by immersion following conversion. Okay, and so we want to be a church that helps you take steps of obedience. Because here's what we believe. When we obey Jesus, our lives flourish. That the best life is the life following Jesus. And so if, if you're here and you're like, Josh, that's me. Like, I, I haven't gotten baptized, man, I've been nervous. I'm going to give you a way to respond at the end of the service by just filling out a card so that we can start a conversation. Man, we don't force anybody to do anything. We never pressure anybody, man, into baptism. But I do want to be a church, and I want to be honest with you. I want to help you obey if that's an area that you haven't obeyed. All right, so Mary's advice is for all of us. Man, do whatever he tells you to do. Verse 6, now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. So these stone jars held water that was used uh, for washing your hands, okay? And they held spiritual significance that we're going to talk about in a little bit. But I don't want us to miss the practical significance, okay? Think with me. Remember, they didn't have running water back then. They didn't have sinks. They didn't have hand soap. They didn't have hand sanitizer. And they worked outside in the heat with animals all day. So when you got to a feast, you were looking for somewhere to wash your hands before you ate. Like, it was pretty grimy and dirty. And so here's what they would do. There'd be a station before you went into the feast with these jars for purification. And you'd go in there and you'd put your arms up to the elbow in these things. And you'd, like, scrub off all the dirt and all the grime and all the stuff. And it would get in the water. And then you'd pull your hands out. And they didn't have paper towels or, like, those Dyson Air Blades, you know. So they'd just go like this. You know, they're kind of like my kids in the bathroom. Like, water going everywhere, you know. Um, and so that's, that's what you do. So, so here's the thing. Think about hundreds of people using those stone jars over multiple days of this feast. I mean, by this point in the feast, those things are pretty nasty, right? The, the inside is kind of caked with dirt and grime. The outside is splattered with water and mud. I mean, they were not, they were not clean vessels. So Jesus says, hey, fill those things up with, with water. Fair enough, but they're dirty vessels. So maybe an equivalent would be toilet water, okay? Like it's like clean technically, but you know that thing is not clean. So, I mean, I'm not trying to be crude. This is what Jesus is telling these servants to do. Hey, guys, go get a ladle, go to the bathroom, get some water out of the toilet, and take it to the master of the feast, who, by the way, is your boss. He's the one paying you. How would you like to do that? Right? I mean, it's, it makes no sense. It, it, and Jesus doesn't give him any explanation. He's not like, hey, guys, no, 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 no. I'm going to turn it into wine. 
He didn't tell him that. He's just like, go get some toilet water, take it to your boss. And you're like, what? Right? He doesn't give him any sort of explanation. He just tells them to do something he expects them to obey. So here, here's the question that I, I think is worth us wrestling with. How do you respond when Jesus asks you to do something that you don't understand? How do you respond when Jesus asks you to do something that might result in your embarrassment? I mean, that's certainly the case for these, man, for these servants. How we respond in those moments, man, might have a greater impact and, and far-ranging implications than we think. Look at verse 9. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. So by the time the water makes it to the master of the feast, it had been miraculously transformed into wine. Okay, it was dirty water, now it's new wine. And, and miracles don't happen every day, right? This is not a common occurrence for 120 gallons of water to turn into 120 gallons of wine. So, man, let's, let's think for a minute about miracles together, okay? So here's what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that God created the laws of nature, and because they're his laws, for most of the time, he works in and through them, right? It would make sense, they're his laws. But because he's the author, because he's the creator, when it suits his purposes, he can supersede or interrupt those laws to make a point. He doesn't do it a lot, but if you look through the scriptures, he does do it. And so that is what uh, Christians believe and the Bible teaches in this moment, that Jesus as God the Son, man, kind of superseded uh, the, the laws of nature and miraculously transformed this water into wine. Um, now, uh, if you're here and you're a strict naturalist, so you believe that that nothing exists outside of kind of the measurable biological world, there's no spirit, there's no supernatural, there's no soul, um, you, you won't believe this. And like, fair enough, because your presuppositions don't allow you to. And so you'll probably think um, something like, oh, this didn't actually happen. Uh, this was a fable or a legend that the disciples of Jesus made up afterwards to kind of, you know, bolster his claims, right? So if you've been to any community college or university or you've watched the History Channel, this is what you've heard. It's an old hat story. Jesus never claimed to be God. He just never did. He was just a moral teacher. Uh, but then his disciples were so sad when he died that they came up with all these legends and they built all these legends and built the Bible, but none of this stuff actually happened. The real Jesus never did any of this, okay? So that, I mean, that's, that's a lie that's been told for hundreds and hundreds of years, okay? Um, and fair enough. If, if you're a strict naturalist, that's what you have to believe, right? If, if you don't believe in the supernatural, you can't believe that Jesus just transformed water into wine like that, okay? But here's, here's what I think. And I don't know you, but Here's what I imagine if you're a strict naturalist. I imagine there's people in your life that you care deeply about, that you like love, right? Maybe you, uh, your parents, maybe your spouse, maybe you have kids, maybe there's, there's friends that, that, that you love. But if you're a strict naturalist, you actually don't love them. None of that is love, that's all chemicals. So you, because you, there is no such thing as love, there's only biology. So you don't actually love your spouse, you just find her profitable for mating, Okay. You don't love your kids even. You don't have compassion or care for your kids. You just, you just want your DNA to, to continue going. So the only reason you do what you do is, is because you want your DNA to, to continue on. And so my question to you, if you're a strict naturalist, is does that feel true to you? Because that's true. Like maybe you'd raise your hand and say, yeah, I don't, I don't actually love anybody. I don't actually, there's nothing called love. It, it, we're just all chemicals. And maybe that's what you believe, but I doubt it. I doubt at like a, a practical level, that's what you think. I think you actually believe there is something more than just biology. Or how about this? Um, you're probably a caring person. I, I, I've, I've met, some of the nicest people I've met claim to be, man, totally secular, strict naturalists. And yet, like you're probably a caring person. I bet when you see injustice, it breaks your heart. And maybe you have a particular heart for a, uh, a group of people. Maybe you really care about the disabled community. Maybe you volunteer with the Special Olympics and that's just like a passion that you have. But if you believe in Darwinian evolution, you have no philosophical foundation for caring about any of that. 
Because Darwinian evolution just says the strong eat the weak. It's just survival of the fittest. That's how we all got here. So injustice is not wrong. Injustice is the strong eating the weak. And you should definitely not care about the disabled community because it's just survival of the fittest. Why in the world are you doing that? I don't think that's true of you. I think you really do care about those things. But what I'm trying to do is just kind of press on you a little bit to say you can't actually hold to a strict naturalist position and care about that stuff. It's not consistent philosophically. You see what I'm saying? Now, that doesn't prove that this miracle happened. That, that would be a whole, we'd have to have a whole long conversation, read a lot of big books together. But what I'm trying to show you is that Christians are thoughtful people, and it is inaccurate to be like, oh, Christians are those people who just believe in faith and don't believe in reason, and secular uh, strict naturalists are the people that are all about reason. It's like, no, we're all operating with all kinds of assumptions that we can't prove, okay? And so this miracle happened. I'm not saying it's easy to get my arms around how this happened. I don't know how it happened. But I'm saying it's easier for me to get my arms around this than it is for me to get my arms around the fact that I don't actually love my kids and that injustice isn't wrong and that I shouldn't care about anybody else, okay? So a little, little digression there to helpfully engage with you if you have those questions. So here's what happens. By the time the water gets to the master of the ceremony, it has been miraculously transformed from water into wine. And I want us to notice how many steps of obedience were required for this miracle to take place. Think about it. Step one, Mary goes to Jesus. Step two, Mary tells the servants, do whatever he says. Step three, the servants fill up the jars with water. Step four, the servants take water out of the jar. Step five, they take it to the master of the feast. Guys, they don't know what's going to happen. Jesus didn't tell them it was going to turn into wine. They're probably like, man, this is embarrassing, but like, here we go. Little did they know that a miracle was waiting on the other side of their obedience. Church, what if your miracle is on the other side of your obedience? Now, what if your marriage could be saved? What if you could find freedom from addiction? Now, what if God could give you endurance to walk with peace and contentment through this season of singleness? How many miracles are stored up in stone jars because God's people haven't obeyed him? How many miracles are stored up in stone jars because God's people haven't obeyed him? So here's my request, my exhortation. Whatever step Jesus is calling you to take, take it. Even if you don't understand it, even if it might be a little bit embarrassing because you simply don't know what the results might be. So the servants take the water to the master of the feast. Here's verse 10. And the master of the feast said to the groom, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. So the custom of the day was to serve your very best wine, your very best vintage first, so that you look impressive and you looked really generous. And then when people had drank too much and their palates were kind of dulled, right, then you brought out the cheap stuff, right? So a modern equivalent would be like, you start with like a nice craft beer and you end with like natural light, okay? Like that would be, and all the college students are like, amen, anyway. Um, so like that, that's kind of what the custom of the day was. And yet, this thing gets totally flipped on its head. Jesus not only changed 120 gallons of water into 120 gallons of wine, he changed 120 gallons of water into the best wine, into wine that was so good that the master of the feast was like, we need to stop and we need to compliment the groom because of how good this wine is. You see, essentially what's going on is Jesus went from being a guest at this wedding to being the host. That's what happened. He stepped in and did what the host was responsible to do but was unable to do. And that is one way to think about becoming a Christian. I, you know, before you're a Christian, a lot of people, like, want, you want Jesus at your party, right? Probably. He might even be an honored guest at your party. You're glad he's there. You don't want him to leave. But, like, you're the host, and you're calling the shots. And one way to think about becoming a Christian is you invite Jesus to become the host. And all of a sudden, he, he decides where the tables go, and he decides what food gets served, and he decides what music gets played, Right? It's still a party, but now he's in charge and you're a guest at his party. Man, that's, that's kind of what it means to become a Christian, to invite him to be your savior and your Lord. And the good news is Jesus is a fantastic party host, 
Okay, whether it's here in John 2 with wine or whether it's John 6 with fish and bread, man, he is able to multiply and to provide in exceeding an abundance of what we ask or imagine. And so maybe you're here today and you're like, you know what, I like Jesus, I like church, I'm kind of interested. That might be a helpful way for you to think about, man, am I the host and Jesus the guest or is Jesus the host and I'm the guest? All right, verse 11. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Notice that John calls this a sign and not a miracle. So he actually uses a different Greek word than miracle. He uses this word, a sign. What is a sign? Well, a sign points beyond itself. A sign is a miracle of Jesus that points to a spiritual reality about God and us. And oftentimes in the book of John, Jesus will perform a sign and then he'll preach a sermon to interpret the sign. So for instance, in John chapter 6, he multiplies bread, then he preaches a sermon about how he is the bread of life. You see, signs are not just random acts of power. Signs are, are, are given to demonstrate something about Jesus' redemptive purpose. They're, they're given to teach us something about God and us. But here in John 2, Jesus doesn't preach a sermon, right? So we don't have him interpreting it for us. And so we're going to have to do a little bit of work. We're going to have to look at the details of the text and understand, man, what does this sign mean for us today? And it starts with understanding what these jars represented. Okay, I told you that there was a practical significance, but there's also a spiritual significance. You see, they were used for the Jewish rites of purification, the Jewish rites of purification. You see, in the Old Testament, God gave his people a system of washing ceremonies. And the point of these washing ceremonies was to communicate the important idea that unholy people cannot just walk into the presence of a holy God. That if we're going to go into God's presence, there has to be a purification. There has to be a cleansing. We have to be totally pure. And so these washing ceremonies were symbols given to reinforce that truth. They were helpful as a symbol, but they lacked power. They lacked power because water could cleanse your hands, but water couldn't cleanse your heart. Right? And some of you have experienced this, especially if you grew up around church. Maybe you grew up going to church and Sunday school and vacation Bible school. I mean, you know all the stories. Man, you, you know all the answers to the questions. You know how to pray. You know how to pray in Jesus' name, which is next level, right? Like, you know when to make sounds when you're praying. Like, mm, that's good, you know? Like, like you, know how to, you know how to be a Christian, right? You, you know church culture. You're clean on the outside. And yet it's possible that maybe you're here and you're like, but my heart hasn't been transformed. Man, my heart is still full of man, malice and selfishness and idolatry and sin. And that was the case for the Israelites. They had all these systems of ritual cleansing, but they didn't have new hearts. And that's what they needed. So that's what those stones represent. They, they represented external ritual that pointed towards the need for internal transformation. That's the stone, jars. Now, what did Jesus do? What did he actually do? He changed dirty water into new wine. That's what he did. He transformed dirty water into new wine. Think with me. He did not filter the water. He didn't boil the water to make it sanitary. He transformed it. And he didn't transform a little bit of it. He didn't transform like just enough so that they could finish out the day. He transformed 120 gallons, which translates to 900 bottles of wine. That is way too much wine for this party. Like they're giving out bottles of wine as parting gifts, you know? Why did Jesus do that? I mean, he knew how much wine they needed, and yet he made an, an extraordinary amount of wine. Why did he do that? Because it symbolizes the abundance of God's grace towards you. It symbolizes the abundance of God's grace towards you. Have you ever felt like you exhausted God's mercy? Have you ever thought like, man, I can't go to church this morning because of last night? 
Like, I, I did the thing again that I swore that I wasn't going to do. Or, man, I have this messy divorce in my past. Or I have these attractions that I can't control. Or, or I have this habit that I can't break. And I can't, I can't go to God. I can't go to church. I can't be a Christian because I can't get these things under control. Well, what this text shows us is that we can never exhaust the grace of God. Man, that he has 120 gallons of grace for you, overflowing and more than enough. So Jesus created an enormous quantity of wine, but he also created an enormous quality of wine. It was so good that the master of the feast stopped and was like, we need to acknowledge how incredible this wine is. What's that about? Why not just make wine? Why make really, really good wine? Well, I love this. It's theological commentary. Here's what's going on here. Here's what John is doing as the author. He's saying, hey, the first phase of this party symbolizes the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, of the Old Covenant, with its rites of purification and so on. And that was good wine. It was. It was good wine at the time. It was how God revealed himself and how he related to Israel. But the second phase of this party, the phase that Jesus inaugurated, symbolizes the fulfillment of the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. Jesus Christ offered himself as the Lamb of God once and for all so that we can be cleansed not just on the outside, but also on the inside. All right, so all, all this is going on with all these symbols. And I know you're like, Josh, you're talking symbols and covenants and jars and wine. Can you simplify it for me? I can't, okay? So if you want to know what does this sign mean, here it is. Jesus didn't come to make good people better. He came to make bad people new. Jesus did not come to make good people better. He came to make bad people new. Jesus did not come to filter you. He did not come to sanitize you and to reform your behavior. He came to affect utter transformation in your life, to make you a new creation, as different as new wine is from dirty water. And friends, we all need that. Because the truth is, every single one of us is like dirty water in those jars. Every single one of us is contaminated with sin and selfishness and idolatry. I mean, who here this morning would raise their hand and say, I have no regrets? I've never done anything wrong. I've never been selfish. I've never been idolatrous. I, I've, I've never broken a promise. I am confident to stand in front of a holy God and be totally and utterly exposed before him. Sign me up for that. None of us would say that. None of us with a shred of self-awareness would say that. The truth is, the scriptures say this, and we all know this from personal experience, that, that we're like the dirty water. And what we need is not to be filtered. What we need is to be transformed. What we need is to be changed into something entirely new. And that is what Jesus came to do. Not to make good people better, to make bad people new. Well, how can that occur? Like if that needs, that's a big deal. How can that occur? I mean, it was miraculous in the story and it's miraculous in our lives. How can it occur? Well, it can occur because of the hour towards, with, towards which Jesus's life was moving. You see, Jesus Christ was perfectly righteous. Faithful, honest, just, good, kind. He is like that new wine. He is like that new wine, which is so wonderful that everyone takes notice. But Jesus was headed to the cross. And on the cross, Jesus didn't just die for sin. He also became sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus became the dirty water so that you could become the new one. Jesus suffered shame and condemnation in your place. Jesus' body was broken so that yours wouldn't have to be. Jesus' blood was shed so that yours wouldn't have to be. Jesus died so that you could be forgiven. Jesus was condemned by the Father so that you could be justified by him. Jesus didn't come to make good people better. 
He came to make bad people new. And today, through the scriptures, Jesus is inviting you to be made new. So if you're here today and you say, Josh, I'm, yeah, that's me. I need to be made new. Maybe I've been playing church my whole life. And I've been cleansing the outside, but inside it's, it's not clean. Or maybe you say, yeah, Josh, I resonate with that. I'm, I'm like that dirty water. I need to be made new. How does that happen? Well, it's, a, it's a fairly straightforward process. The first step is, is you admit that you need a savior. You admit, Lord, I'm a sinner who needs a savior. I'm like that dirty water. I can't save myself. I can't filter myself. I don't need to be sanitized. I need to be transformed. Next, you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You believe that on the cross, Jesus did everything necessary for your salvation. That Jesus didn't just die for the sins of the world, but Jesus died for your sins. And you confess that Jesus Christ is your savior and your Lord. He is your savior and your Lord. You invite him to become the host of your party. You don't just go to Jesus and say, hey, Jesus, I'd like you to create some, some wine for me, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna continue being the host. He says, no, I'd love to create that wine for you, but I only create the wine if I'm the host. So when you're ready for me to become the host, I'm ready to transform your wine. And you confess him not only as your savior, but as your Lord. And you say, Lord, I want my whole life to be centered around you. Man, that is how you repent and receive new life in Christ today. And that might be what some of you need to do. That might be what some of you need to do today. Or you might be here and maybe you've been following Jesus for years. What you need to do is you need to respond to the words of Mary. And there's something that Jesus is calling you to do and you need to do it. There's somebody you need to forgive. There, there's some habit or behavior that's killing you that you need to stop. There's some, there's some spiritual discipline that you need to begin. Maybe it's baptism. Maybe you need to be baptized. If that's the case, here's what I invite you to do. Grab the connect card, it's in front of you. Fill it out and just write baptism on it. Turn it in and we'll follow up with you to help you take next steps. What I wanna do is I wanna invite you to bow your heads with me. And I just wanna give you an opportunity to respond. I just wanna create some space where the Holy Spirit can communicate with you. And if you need to repent and believe in Christ today, I wanna encourage you to do that. Lord, I'm, I'm like that dirty water, but I believe that what you've done is enough for me. And I want you to make me new wine. I want you to become the host of my life. Father, I'm sorry that I've, I've delayed obedience for so long in this area, but I see it now. Give me strength. Give me the resolve to follow through. I'm gonna give you a moment here to just process with the Holy Spirit and then I'll lead us.